let's talk about perfusion imaging. What we would like to need to know is the location size of infarct, the amount of the penumbra. The amount of brain tissue that is reperfusable. The maps are automatically displayed in an intuitive layout. These scanners, as you all know, provide volumetric scanning. The mismatch identifies the penumbra. And the beauty of the latest software is that uh, it actually gives us really rapid outputs. In order to save brain. Brain CT and MR perfusion. The latest in trends and treatment for patients with acute ischemic stroke. Welcome back to Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and history that come with it. I'm your host, Jim Siegler, and this week on our program, Advanced Perfusion Neuroimaging, pearls, the pitfalls, and some of my own personal preferences. We'll discuss the things that you learned after reading trials like Dawn and Diffuse 3, and the things that you thought you knew about perfusion imaging, maybe some things you didn't know, and the clinical applications in non-stroke patients. I'm Jim Siegler. Don't go anywhere. Before we had perfusion imaging to select stroke patients for TPA and for thrombectomy, we had the unenhanced imaging, non-contrast CT. The CT scan, as I'm sure you know, has a history that dates back more than 20 years for prognostication and management of acute stroke. The aspect score was originally developed by a team of Canadians whose results were published in the journal Lancet in the year 2000. The investigators in this study treated 156 patients with anterior circulation stroke, using IVTPA within three hours of last known well, and they sought to estimate the odds of a good neurologic outcome and the risk of symptomatic hemorrhage based on the burden of infarct in the anterior circulation, specifically the MCA territory. Using a 10-point assessment of each major MCA territory, basal ganglia, anterior temporal pole, insula, posterior temporal lobe, etc., for each loss of a singular region of the MCA territory, there was a corresponding fall in the odds of long-term functional independence and a correspondingly higher probability of functional dependence or death. For an aspects of 8 to 10, for example, the patient would have 70 to 80% chance of achieving long-term functional independence after TPA. With an aspects of 0 to 2, by contrast, there'd be a 50% chance of dying and almost no chance of reaching functional independence. The burden of infarct was too great for these patients, even on head CT. But the problem with the aspect score is, well, there are a couple of problems. First, it only applies to the MCA territory. ACA infarcts, PCA infarcts, and infarcts of the posterior circulation cannot be graded. Sure, there is a similar posterior circulation aspect score, but it's incredibly difficult to grade, and it's limited by the quality of the CT scanner. Second, aspects has a horrific inter-rater reliability. In general, two raters tend to grade favorable aspects pretty similarly, 6 to 10 is about 6 to 10 between two raters, and if it's unfavorable, then the aspects is generally unfavorable between the two raters. But when it comes to the gray area, those aspect scores of 5 or 6 or 7, that's where things get kind of hairy. One of my concerns, and kind of how I imagine this is, is that each rater grades the aspects differently. These early changes are very subtle, and the inter-observer variation is quite amazing. To me, it looks like there's a mismatch. When I use aspects, I grade based on the regions of hypodensity, irreversible ischemia. Sulcal effacement and loss of the gray-white differentiation, they are signs of early cytotoxic edema, and they can potentially reverse with reperfusion, so I don't tend to use those features when I assess the aspects. Some others may use those. 
Yeah, that temporal lobe effacement counts for two points on the aspects. Count it. So it all depends on the preference of the raider. Third, and lastly, aspects is a poor marker of ultra-early ischemic injury. The real early ischemic changes are frequently seen in only 15 to 60 percent. I'm sure that you've come across plenty of normal head CTs in patients who have anoxic brain injury or patients who come in with a devastating ICA occlusion and a normal head CT, but they rapidly progress through their infarct. The aspect score fails in these hyperacute scenarios. Here is where perfusion scans come in. And perfusion imaging was developed right about the same time as the aspect score, actually. As the name suggests, perfusion imaging relies on the timing and the concentration of a radio tracer in order to provide you with an estimate of about how much blood flow is perfusing the brain. For CT scans, which is mostly what I'm going to talk about moving forward, CT scans, we use an iodinated contrast medium that's injected into a peripheral vein over about 4 to 10 seconds. Eventually, the contrast bolus reaches the heart and from there to the brain. Once it reaches the brain, the CT perfusion software pre-selects a major intracranial artery, often the internal carotid. The system automatically detects the artery and vein. Or the technologist has to do this, and this is your arterial input function, key concept here. After this, using rapidly cycled multi-detector helical CT scanning, the contrast medium is tracked into regions of neural tissue. The venous outflow is also measured, typically around the torcula or the confluence of the sinuses. And with all this information, you get a rough time-in, time-out estimate of how long the blood took to arrive at the brain, how long it took to perfuse regions of interest, and then exit. At this stage, the application will have computed functional maps. Now, this was definitely an oversimplification, and the next part is a bit more challenging to follow. The repetitive scanning creates contrast concentration versus time curves, and the tissue concentration of contrast versus time curve meaning the amount of contrast in a region of brain per unit of time, is then scaled to the arterial concentration versus time curve. And this is a process called deconvolution, which most modern perfusion software platforms use. You need to scale the brain tissue contrast concentration to the arterial contrast concentration and to the volume of brain tissue of interest that's being perfused in order to compute the mean transit time and the volume of contrast that's ultimately getting through these regions. Now, this would be really simple were it that all brain tissue requires the same amount of oxygen and glucose. Unfortunately, highly metabolic regions of tissue, like the cortex and deep gray structures, they require more than twice the nutrients that white matter requires. And this is a critical point, because it means that we're already putting ourselves at a disadvantage by assuming that the relative cerebral blood flow, which is calculated as the blood volume by the mean transit time, we are falsely assuming that any reduction in blood flow to a pre-specified threshold will cause irreversible ischemia. Truth be told, a cerebral blood flow threshold of less than 40% of what's predicted by the arterial input function could be sufficient to cause irreversible cortical ischemia, while for the subcortical white matter, a threshold of less than 15% is necessary. Although you could use these different thresholds based on the different types of tissue, based on the animal and early preclinical human studies, we ultimately decided to settle on a relative cerebral blood flow threshold of less than 30%. And that 30% threshold has been established as the threshold that's the most sensitive and specific for tissue destined to infarct.
Now, there is a lot more physics and math behind all that we just covered, and I'm not going to get into it because it's very dry, and the last time that I used an integral was in high school, but feel free to check out the references in the show notes if you're so inclined. So where did the CBF threshold of 30% come from, and how valid is it? In the late 2000s, a number of papers were published validating CBF as the best perfusion marker of tissue that's destined to infarct. Key concept, CBF identifies tissue destined to infarct. In one prospective observational study of patients with stroke who underwent perfusion imaging very quickly after symptom onset, and an MRI soon after that, mean of 31 minutes after the perfusion scan, the CBF region at a threshold of less than 30% correlated pretty well with the DWI volume. Overall, CBF tended to overestimate the final infarct volume by about 11 cc's, so a small difference by and large. But if you look closely at the scatter plots from this paper by Campbell and colleagues in 2012, there are wild swings in over- and underestimation of the final volume by the CBF measurement. For larger regions of hypoperfusion, meaning more territory at risk, the CBF almost always overestimated that DWI volume, whereas for very small regions of hypoperfusion, the CBF tended to underestimate the DWI volume. But again, for the most part, CBF at a threshold of less than 30%, seem to be the most sensitive and specific marker of tissue destined to infarct, and according to other observational data, it's about 80-85% to sensitive and specific. In a small number of patients, about 10-20% to of them, the RCBF may drastically overestimate infarct volume, especially for patients who undergo thrombectomy. In these patients, we call that large RCBF volume a ghost core. Another key concept, ghost core. With more liberal thresholds of the RCBF, less than 30% or less than 33%, we're more likely to see these ghost cores because, in reality, CBF does not indicate irreversible ischemia and neuronal death. It's not equivalent to a core infarction. Remember, it was validated to correlate with tissue-destined infarct. So with larger swaths of territory where the RCBF is less than 30%, we end up seeing this significant overestimate in the final infarct volume. I'm not going to get into it now, but I want you to think about that later when considering how clinical trials have excluded patients with, quote, large cores because they are presumed to do poorly. With a more stringent RCBF threshold, and it seems like a cerebral blood flow of less than 13% may be the most specific for this, we have seen in prospective observational data that that 13% threshold gives us the least difference between the RCBF volume and the simultaneous DWI volume. So a more conservative threshold is probably more specific. One final point that I want to make about the CBF, and then we'll move on to the next perfusion metric. It gets back to why CBF should not be interpreted as, quote, core infarct. Over time, with large vessel occlusion, the infarct grows. There's a natural decay in the aspects for every hour once a thrombus lodges within an intracranial vessel. And for some patients, the decay is rapid, and the stroke completes rather quickly, those fast progressors. For others, those with great collaterals, younger patients, and non-occlusive thrombi, the decay is slow. If you were to image these patients serially over time, and I've seen this done in my fellowship, some patients show that the RCBF grows over the course of an hour, and for some, the RCBF dwindles. But if you take all comers with an anterior large vessel occlusion, you'll see that the aspect score, which can be normal in the hyperacute phase, it worsens over time, but we do not see that the RCBF volume grows proportionally. In fact, in a study that we published involving nearly 200 patients with large vessel occlusion and CT perfusion imaging, 
there's not even the tiniest change in any perfusion parameter tested over time. So another key concept here, perfusion parameters don't change over time. In considering that, if the RCBF were to indicate the volume of the core irreversible ischemic injury, shouldn't it grow as the aspects decays? It's for this very reason that I rely more heavily on the aspect score, or for evidence of hypodensity on HET-CT in the extended window, than I would rely on the RCBF. For the listeners out there who've treated a lot of LVOs, you know what I mean when you see that a patient comes in at 18 hours after last known normal, and they've got an aspects of 2, but their, quote, core volume is 10 cc's. What metric do you rely on when you decide whether the patient goes for thrombectomy? So when you're thinking about the RCBF and what territory constitutes a, quote, core infarct, the take-home messages here are, 1. RCBF should be used as it was designed to predict the volume of tissue that's destined to infarct. 2. RCBF often overestimates the final infarct volume on MRI, especially when there's a larger RCBF volume and after recanalization. And 3. RCBF does not change with time and therefore it can underestimate the true volume of injury in a later window. So that's enough about the cerebral blood flow. Let's move on to Tmax and then the clinical applications of perfusion imaging, and we'll wrap up. As you see here, a typical layout includes blood flow, blood volume, the mean transit time, and Tmax. The Tmax is the complementary perfusion metric to CBF, and it's currently the most accurate predictor of tissue at risk of infarction if recanalization is not achieved. Effectively, this is the penumbra. And the blue region may indicate tissue at risk, or penumbra. And therefore assists in our decision-making process regarding thrombectomy and revascularization. If RCBF indicates critical hypoperfusion, the Tmax represents subcritical hypoperfusion. Technically, it's the time to maximum residue function, which is calculated as the bolus delay from the arterial input function to the region of interest, accounting for the confounding effects of bolus administration. And a Tmax threshold of more than 6 second delay has been shown to be the best predictor of that subcritical hypoperfusion. So that's it. That's all there is to say about Tmax. So moving on to the last segment of the show, the clinical applications of perfusion imaging, let's start with a case. So last week, I saw a patient who came to the ED. We had just started to pilot this new software program called VizAI, which is a platform that sends you push notifications for every head CT or CTA or CT perfusion performed for a stroke patient. And you are able to access the imaging immediately on your phone, even if you did not order the imaging and you don't have any idea who the patient is. There are tremendous applications for this, and the idea is it will streamline care. So we had this patient last week, an elderly woman who came to the ED confused. She underwent a head CT. It was not a stroke alert. We weren't notified immediately because her confusion was not initially recognized as a global aphasia. The head CT showed a hyperdense left M1 segment, and we got the call about 40 minutes afterwards. She is aphasic, our senior resident was told. And back to the scanner she went. Got a CTA. She could have gotten a CTP, but again, in my own personal practice, I don't routinely get CTPs for thrombectomy decision-making. I could tell she was aphasic, her aspects was 10, and if the MCA occlusion were real, I was taking her to the angio suite. Anyways, the CTA was done. M1 occlusion was recognized, and VizAI on my phone pinged me with the alert. LVO detected, it said. But let's rewind. Say this patient had presented to a community hospital. 
or to an ED where no stroke physician or overnight radiologist were immediately available to see the patient and nobody to interpret the emergent CT or CTA. Confusion was her presenting symptom, remember? What if you had the technology to tell you with a high degree of certainty that her confusion was a stroke when you really couldn't tell based on your clinical assessment? This happens all the time, right? A patient in the ICU who's less alert, a patient who's on dialysis or hypotensive and lethargic, someone who has heart failure, who's dizzy, nauseated, maybe they have an acute vestibular syndrome. What if you could scan them and the imaging result would be automated, like a lab value? Only this value were a brain map and it was color-coded, showing you that there's a part of the brain that's not getting enough blood. That is exactly where perfusion imaging can be helpful. The maps are automatically displayed in an intuitive layout, making it easy to page through the slices in a synchronized fashion. And in observational studies, when MRI is not immediately available, or there's not a radiologist on call 24-7, CTP is useful for identifying these distal occlusions and strokes that can be missed on CT and CTA. Let's consider another scenario. A patient presents with left gaze preference and right-sided weakness. You might think, okay, pretty straightforward left MCA syndrome. Then on the CTA, the anterior circulation is patent. Only the basilar looks a little diminutive. Possibly atherosclerotic. You don't know if it's hypoplastic. Maybe there is an occlusion. You can't really tell. It's possible that the patient's having a brainstem infarct, knocking out their right paramedian pontine reticular formation and their anterior medulla. Kind of a stretch. Doesn't really fit the syndrome. But a basilar occlusion has a high mortality if it's untreated and unrecognized. Do you call the CAT team in? Take the patient emergently for angio? Or maybe you keep the patient on the scanner for another 60 seconds. Get that CTP. And for this patient, a nice holohemispheric pattern of hypoperfusion emerges on the left side. But the ICA is open. MCA is open. It turns out, your patient is post-ictal. Or maybe they're going in and out of seizures. According to some good observational data, patients who are actively seizing will show evidence of hyperperfusion on CTP about a third of the time. And this can go up to 70% for patients in status epilepticus. And post-ictal patients, maybe like this patient, they may have focal regions of hypoperfusion about half the time. It can look identical to stroke, but the vessels will be open, and there's no vascular lesion to explain the loss of blood flow. The perfusion fails because there's a reduced metabolic demand in the post-ictal state, as we've seen historically with bold imaging and functional MRI. The same thing can happen with migraines, a hypoperfusion state without proximal stenosis or occlusion. So when you're unsure, or if the vessels are open, and the patient has some confusing deficits or some pretty significant deficits, why not just get the CTP and get more information that you can act on immediately? You can treat the patient in status. You can avoid taking that hemiplegic migraineur to the cath lab. And for me, this is really where CTP comes in handy. But you should think about it for yourself. Why would you get perfusion imaging in a patient? What information are you looking for? Before we wrap up, I do want to quickly mention the recommendations put forth by the 2019 AHA guidelines, which state that for patients with acute ischemic stroke and large vessel occlusion, CT perfusion is not needed if a patient presents within the six-hour window of last known normal. Two of the early window thrombectomy trials demonstrated that perfusion imaging selection was not necessary to demonstrate a benefit, the patients only required a good aspect score, a good premorbid functional status, and a proximal occlusion. After six hours of last known normal, 
the guidelines state that CTP or DWI MRI should be performed in order to aid in patient selection for thrombectomy. That said, what is recommended in the guidelines does not always reflect what's done in routine clinical practice, and they also don't reflect what's approved by the FDA. TPA, for example, which almost every center provides, is off-label in the three to four and a half hour window, not an FDA-approved treatment for the U.S. And with that, I think we'll cue up the music. Thanks so much for joining us again for another great week on the Brainwaves podcast. For more information, please take a look at the references in our show notes. And please remember that this podcast is for educational purposes only, not for clinical decision making. We're also happy to take your questions or get any feedback from you about our program. Just reach out to us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or email us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. This episode of the Brainwaves podcast was produced by myself, Jim Siegler. Music for our program this week was courtesy of Julie Maxwell, John Bartman, Kai Engel, and Packy Durham. Our theme song was composed by Jimothy Dalton. Some of the voices you heard throughout the program were those of Dr. Matthias Prokop of the Radbound Medical Center in the Netherlands, Terry Yeager, who's our Comprehensive Stroke Program Coordinator at Cooper University Hospital, and a recording that was produced by GE Healthcare, all of which are freely available on YouTube. Sound effects by Mike Kunig and Daniel Simeon. I'm Jim Siegler. Talk to you again soon.